Welcome to the Critical Witness podcast, where we talk faith, apologetics, evangelism, and anything else we can think of. We hope you enjoy the show. Good evening. Welcome to Critical Witness. Uh, my name is Phil. And I'm here with my co-host, Dan, and a good friend of Dan's, who I've met a couple of times uh, while he was here in the UK. Uh, Bruce Blackshaw will be talking about some of the issues around uh, pro-life, how Christians respond to pro-life, what pro-life means, but specifically looking at uh, issues that Christians may not have thought about before, uh, such as artificial wombs. And if you're like me and not medically trained or have any medical background, you might be learning something new. So I'm going to be asking the uh, basic questions. Uh, Dan's got more of a medical background than I do, so he's also published with Bruce. Um, Bruce is also a very clever guy. Just look at the description and you'll see what I mean. So without any further ado, ado I'm going to bring us all onto the screen. Bruce, welcome to Critical Witness. It's good to have you. Thank you. Could we, could we just say that you did a tremendous job at not acting surprised. <laughs> I was working I, really hard yeah. at that. I, I was I, about I, seven out of ten, I would say. Seven. I'm yeah. still improving on the My... I will not be surprised look. Uh, I was I was just thinking quickly, Bruce, I remember we actually tried to start a pod. I think we had you and Robert Oram on, didn't we, to try and sort out a podcast about 18 true. months ago. Yeah, yeah. It just I remember, it, yeah. it, it went terribly bad. It went it, it went did. Bad. It went bad. Not not free for you know anyone. No, I think it was it was the technology Tem- didn't quite um play ball. We were using OBS software and Skype and it was a mess. Yeah. Yeah, I so do remember that being pretty complicated. Yeah. So hopefully you, you were much more impressed with the intro video then than uh, you can see we've we've, we've uh, come a long way. We've, we've, we've definitely done a lot time. of fine tuning. Well, it's we it's the wonders of StreamYard. <laughs> it does it all for you and you just turn up is it's a beautiful thing um so there you go we we there is some unseen footage somewhere of of us trying to get this to work i'm sure it was deleted um so welcome uh bruce could you introduce yourselves a little bit uh, yourselves yourself to us <laughs> singular um who, who are you what do you do and why are you a Christian in sort of a five-minute summary? Okay, I'll, I'll, we'll try to do that. Um, <laughs> Maybe six uh, if you were generous. Yeah, okay. Uh, Even um, less because it'll go over. Okay. Three. <laughs> so I'm kind of an Australian. I'm born in Australia, in Australia now. Um, but I have lived about 15 years of my life in the UK. I'm a dual citizen both British and Australian. Um, I grew up mainly in Australia with a bit of time in the US. My parents are both uh, academics, mainly in the biological sciences. And um, we lived in the US a couple of times when I was a kid, which was the very first time I had any exposure to Christianity. Um, I was packed off to a vacation Bible school when I was in probably fourth grade or something like that because 
as you probably know, the, in the US they have very long summer holidays and my parents needed somewhere to send me for, for a week for a bit of peace probably. <laughs> and um, yeah, that was the first time I had been taught anything about the Bible, anything about God. Um, my parents are agnostics. I'd never been to church or anything like that. So that was, I don't know, I think that was my first point of contact with Christianity and uh, just gave me possibly an interest in in God and that kind of thing. I came back to Australia and growing up as a teenager, got involved in a church youth group kind of by not by my design really i think my brother went along because of some encounter with a christian group at school and so i eventually got involved in that same group joined the church and uh, eventually worked out what it was all about and became christian um so yeah um, my parents still well my, my father's not alive anymore but my mother is still an agnostic and you know i've not really seen her change her beliefs at all in all that time but um she doesn't seem to have any problem with me being a christian as she's a fairly open-minded academic so yeah. um that's i guess that's not surprising um i i write the odd christian blog post on my blog and she subscribes to it and reads it and talks yeah. about it which is which is good um, in terms of the rest of my life, um, I kind of have a few different interests, mainly sort of spending too much time at university studying. So I, I originally studied mathematics and physics. After a few years of teaching in uh, high school, A-level maths and physics, I got a little tired of that. and. Um, Went back to university and did a computer science degree and <clears throat> started a career in uh, software development. So I kind of still do that on the uh, maybe half or two thirds of my time. Um, I moved to the UK, we went in the late 90s and worked in investment banking for about 10 years uh, as in on the IT side of things uh, in, in the city, which was an, an interesting experience. Um, <laughs> And eventually went back to Australia where um, I have been, I was married for all of that time um, to my wife, Kim. We got married quite a long time ago in the mid nineties. And she, she came with me to the UK, moved back to Australia. We've got two children uh, who are now teenagers. Um, I, while I was in the UK, I started an IT company, a software development company, which I've, that's eventually I stopped work and dedicated myself to that full time. And uh, I've been doing that for well, probably 18 years, maybe 15 years full time now. So uh, I write encryption software during the day. Um, we, the company is quite a small, one, it's a fairly niche area. We have a, about four or five people in the company spread around the world. I have a partner here in Brisbane. So I I do that, but I work from home and, you know, we've been doing it a long time. So I do have plenty of free time. So I've been involved in Christian apologetics for 
a long time and got a sort of interest always had an interest in philosophy realized that apologetics kind of needs philosophy to really understand what you're talking about i really hate you know making arguments to people and not actually realizing i'm completely out of my depth so, <laughs> happens um, all the time for me uh, yeah <laughs> it happens all the time for me as well but um slightly less since i decided to, I'd, I'd do a philosophy degree and um i kind of looked around and ended up doing one by distance from the university of london uh, while i was in australia um around about 2014 <clears throat> i finally i convinced my wife to let me move back to london and so we moved back to, to london then we've been in australia for a few years and um that's that's when i met dan um at the church i, I started going to in uh, wimbledon and i was still doing my philosophy degree there and uh after i finished that uh, after a couple of years in the uk and since i normally end up studying something i i thought well what do i do with this philosophy degree and um what do you do after you do a degree? I guess you do a you do a, a high degree, then you can learn even more about uh, about what you're studying, even if it is more specialised. And uh, I think Dan was the one who convinced me to st study bioethics and the ethics of abortion, which is what my PhD, which I'm still doing, is on. So I kind of a friend in Australia who's a professor of uh biological engineering gave me a book on uh christian biological ethics uh, bioethics and i read that as well and with uh dan's prompting i ended up uh, applying for a phd at the university of birmingham in the ethics of abortion and got accepted and since then um i've been working on that about half time uh, hopefully we'll wrap that up in the next 12 months Dan has a habit of doing that, of pushing people into um, controversial topics. <laughs> he, seems to, he seems to have a way of convincing everyone else to do the controversial topics while he, he just does operation department practice. Yeah, I was pretty <laughs> successful at that one. Um, I, 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 was, I, I was always interested in the ethics of abortion uh, since I was... I remember when I was school, a school teacher, I was teaching a Catholic school and I remember publishing letters to the editor when people did those kind of things hmm. in the lo local newspaper here in Brisbane um, about an abortion case and, and things like that. So it didn't take too much to push me, but um, yeah, it's certainly a much more interesting area than what I was originally going to do, which I did a dissertation during my uh, uh, my philosophy degree on um design intelligent design and i was thinking about continuing that on mm. for a phd and um i'm glad i didn't I, I, this is it's a lot more interesting the ethics of abortion i think it's a lot more important mm. and no one reads it either just be a waste of time you'd rate it, <laughs> write a bitch thesis and about seven people in the world would read it even though yeah. i'm sure it'd be really good yeah um, just yeah, I suppose intelligent design, possibly. Yeah. I yeah, I, I'm, I'm a little bit critical of intelligent design in terms of its pretensions to be scientific. So, um, which is what my dissertation is on. Hmm. 
So then so you even moved... less people would probably read it. Yeah, you were right, by the way. You did it. You did. It, I remember you did a um, you did a debate with Jonathan McClatchy, who's a Christian apologist. A Christian apologist. Um, yeah, that was that yeah. was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Was that, that was, on, was that a, a public YouTube debate, or was that before everything was on YouTube? No, is it the uh, the London Unbelievable uh, meetup? Ah, uh, okay. Nice. So you've moved from computer science into writing quite a lot of published uh, and published journals about abortion while doing your PhD. Um, what? Just before we go into the sort of the, the sort of newer areas that many of us may not have heard of um, who aren't on the forefront of, of this conversation. What are some of the things that you see happening in the church and sort of Christian world at the moment where engagement is either lacking or, or sort of not headed in the right direction from, from what you, you can see? What are the common sort of pitfalls that Christians are falling into around around abortion conversations? Uh, well, from my part, I think um, we spend way too much time talking about other topics, other issues that get us upset that are happening in, in the current culture and uh, not enough time talking about abortion. Uh, I mean, let me just clarify what I mean by that. I mean, there are a lot of groups talking about abortion, but I mean, within the church itself, we don't hear people talk about abortion from the pulpit very often. So while there are dedicated groups of pro-life organizations doing all kinds of really great things and trying to raise awareness in the church itself, I, I, I don't think we talk about it enough. We don't address it. We don't, um, we don't hear it preached. Uh, I don't know. Have, have you guys ever heard someone talk about abortion from the pulpit? Not, not too much. Um, occasion, very occasionally there's, there's a very high wariness of talking about abortion with the realization that there's some really high statistic and likelihood of a number of women within the congregation having had an abortion. Um, that is true. Yeah, so it's, it's trying to navigate sensitivity. So I was just distracted that Dan's gone totally out of focus. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what's gone on there. Um, but the, um, yeah, so it's navigating sensitivity with the, the, the need to talk clearly about what what we think of human life and where it starts and um so i'd say no i don't i don't hear very much about abortion at all from mm, pulpit. i actually preached on it uh, about a year ago at a, at a friend's church um, not not far away which was interesting and you're right the, i mean after i preached a, a woman came up to me and told me about her abortion and uh she was she was very pleased to hear the message um i think obviously it's something you have to be incredibly sensitive talking about um and i think as like it or not as a male you you don't have the experience of of pregnancy and all those kind of things you don't uh, 
carry carry the burden of pregnancy and that's something you always have to take into account as well but i don't think it means men can't speak out on abortion because mm. they're affected by it as well that, and that's definitely one of the bits that's not talked about at all with within society is the that the impact that abortion has on the men um generally anything that talks about a, a man and abortion is the man forcing the woman to to have one or generally it's they're just not around um but the the actual side of the impact of negative emotional impact on men isn't talked about at all i don't think i've ever heard or seen an article on that side of things no that's true and um also you know miscarriage as well um you know we we hear quite a lot rightly so that uh, you know miscarriage does have an effect on women but it has an effect on men as well mm. so um you know when if a couple has a miscarriage um the, the, the man has, has lost a, a daughter or a son as well. So um, we, you know, we don't uh, tend to talk about that very much. Either. I guess that for me highlights uh, the, the conversation around miscarriage was quite interesting. There's, there was a fairly big push recently, maybe last year. So someone had a, someone who was famous had a, had a miscarriage and decided to talk about it. And it sort of, there's quite a lot of conversation about miscarriage for a period of time. And it just highlighted to me the sort of inconsistency within society that was very, I was very aware of when my wife was pregnant was that the, the will of the parent decides whether or not it's a baby in our current society, that if it's wanted, then it's a child and we talk to it and it's got, uh, you care for it. I mean, you, you, people want to touch the belly, <laughs> like there's something about pregnancy um that is clearly uh the reaction is this is something that we want to care about uh care for it's living it's human it's um if we lose it it's devastating but then on the flip side in the same culture and society we're talking about it's a pregnancy not a human it's a it it's a a woman's choice it's a woman's body when it's scientifically not and you, you've got all this sort of inconsistency that's like it, I, I still haven't quite figured out how to navigate that with empathy because it's quite mind-bogglingly obvious in my mind and if I state things that I think are obvious I usually come across as very insensitive so it's it's trying to work out how to yeah highlight that oddity within society without coming across like a, <laughs> a jerk um yeah um, uh, a philosopher called david boonen uh talks about that in his very well-known book a defense of abortion i can't remember whether it's at, at the beginning or the end and i'll have to paraphrase it but it says <clears throat> as i write this book i look at my eight-year-old son sitting there who i love or something like that and in the full knowledge that the arguments um I'm expounding in this book <clears throat> mean I could have killed him before he was born and it's just there he writes it and he he, he knows what it means that he's providing a, a case for abortion that he could have killed his own son and it's quite confronting and I think mm. he's sort of expressing 
the view that it's actually was a bit confronting to him, but he's going to go where the arguments go. He also has like a um, um, an inutero picture as well, doesn't he? I think on his desk that like he had he had a picture. Didn't, didn't he also have a? Um, I'm pretty sure he had like a sonographer photo saying, you know, at this point you could have killed it, uh, you know, and then but later on. Uh, I do wonder what his son would think about that reading, reading, reading the book. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, thanks, Dad, for letting me live, um, I think. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I still find it. The whole idea is very, very strange, really. Yeah, it's just sort of like you, like you, you were saying, Phil, you know, if I decide you matter, if I decide you have value, then then I'm going to do everything I can to ensure you survive um, and, and you, you're welcomed into this world. But if I decide you don't matter uh, and you don't have any value to me and you're disposable, then, um, you know, then it, it's all, I think psychologists talk about something called motivated reasoning where you, um, you know, people talk about reason as being this neutral rational way to, um, to to come to conclusions but actually when you um, it's often motivated by um, desires you know things that we we want you know if you um, you know so you end up approaching if you don't want the baby because you feel that it's going to be obstructive to certain life goals and things like that that can't help but but affect how you reason about abortion about uh, about uh, pre prenatal life um, so uh, you know, yeah, no, no one's neutral. Mm. It yeah. is uh, interesting that uh, cognitive science does tell us that um, we tend to attribute value as persons to there's certain characteristics of objects. Uh, so if, for example, something has self-propelled movement, then we attribute agency to it and that has value. If uh, something doesn't have self-propelled movement, we find it hard in our in our, our minds don't signal to us that it's alive, really, or that it's yeah. alive and, 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 and sentient. So because embryos and early fetuses can't move of their own accord, then our cognitive apparatus tells us our intuitions about them tell us it's you know it's not not really worth that much and that helps us to dehumanize early developing human beings that's really interesting because i know it would probably have an impact on how we view people with disabilities in general uh outside is that where that's come from is is a view of how we often dehumanize those with disabilities that make the people immobile mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't I don't know where that research has come from. No, I'm sorry. No, I've been yeah, I've not not come across that before, but I guess it kind of uh, makes sense. So I, I guess just to sort of navigate the conversation, because pro life is is a huge issue, especially when it comes to to abortion, and that's kind of what we're discussing. But I'd be interested, what kind of how broad has bit have you been publishing on? Have you been focusing on specific issues within um, the abortion conversation, or have you uh, been sort of pretty thoughtful? In what in terms of what Dan and I've been uh, publishing, it's been quite broad in some ways. Um, <clears throat> we've published a couple of papers or 
this paper that will be published is on ectogenesis, artificial wombs. Um, we've written about um, just, I guess, general abortion arguments, quite a bit on conscientious objection, which is whether medical staff have uh, the right to object to being involved in provision of abortions if it's happening in the, say it's happening in the hospital they work in do, other, do they have to as part of their job be involved in providing for that abortion uh, so that's that's a really important area because that sort of ventures in into what our laws should say about um, our, our work rights and freedoms hmm. um, what else have we been writing about Dan um, embryo experimentation uh, the 14-day yeah. rule uh, that's there's a rule there's a law that says when you have basically embryos in vitro way and experimenting on them where, where scientists are allowed to do that up to 14 days and people oh, yeah. want to extend that to 28 days um, mainly because you can actually now cultivate embryos in a test tube up to 14 or 16 days so we've been writing about that personal identity you've done quite a lot on personal identity. yeah personal identity what it means to be what it means to be us um are we just a psychological being or are we mind and body together hmm. one of the i mean that sounds a bit esoteric but one of the main arguments in the in the pro-choice philosophy is that we don't really exist until where we have a psychological self and yeah. so before then we can we can kill fetuses with that aren't conscious or that um have minimal consciousness because they're not they're not persons Person. they, yeah. they in fact before you have psychological connections in, in your brain before your brain is fully developed you literally do not exist and so aborting a fetus is not ending anyone's life it's a mm. pre person that um, uh, a person one day will inhabit that body but right now they're not there and so you're not harming them and so that, that, that sounds bizarre but that's yeah. that's one of the main reasons why um, philosophers think abortion is permissible and, and it would make sense to say something like my my body uh, my body existed and then I came later on rather than seeing yourself as this sort of psychosomatic unity instead you are you know your your body can exist and then later the real you enters into it um, as those psychological connections are um, that, that seems to me to be extraordinarily difficult to prove from a scientific standpoint so so I, I guess some, some of my fascination with, with this is you guys are dealing with the scholarly side of things how does someone argue that is, is this a philosophical argument that's then gone into mainstream and, and there is no body of evidence or science to back it up or it's, it's a philosophical argument and it's based on our intuitions our philosophical intuitions about about various things there's uh, someone called jeff mcmahon has written a book on this that is very comprehensive and he makes his argument for why that view of who we really are is better than the alternative views but that doesn't so sound very a, a like argument behind it. it doesn't feel intuitive 
uh, to, to me to to intuit that your body isn't you maybe that's just partly because i'm my own worldview that i'm now ingrained into but they, they wouldn't necessarily say that but that is something that that follows from what they're saying um because okay. um and and it is it, it's 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 a it's a philosophical conclusion um that is that's also informed by science as well because actually it is true that those psychological connections do not come till much much later um yeah. you know during um uh you know fetal development but what what's the whether you can de derive that actually it's just what they're arguing is those psychological connections are what matter what make you matter um that's that's the philosophical argument because they're yeah. right in the sense that those yeah those psychological connections do not develop too much later because you know you, you're you, you start from a single cell embryo, a zygote, and, and it takes time for you know, neurological development to, 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 to occur and to, and, and to mature. And, and in fact, yeah. even once you're born, they're still developing, uh, you course, know, right. it, 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 men until your mid-20s, your frontal lobe isn't, you know, uh, you know fully developed. And in fact, that's another thing that Dan, I, Dan and I, together with uh, another colleague, friend, uh, and Callum Miller have written about is uh, infanticide, which is killing a child when soon after it's born. Mm. And one of the implications of this psychological view is that, well, infants actually don't have very many psychological connections either. And they really don't have a sense of self. They're not self-aware until maybe mm. they're 18 months old. And so they don't actually meet the criteria either of yeah. being what's called a person, someone of full moral worth, the same as an adult. And so the implication of these views is that infanticide actually is permissible. I mean, then maybe we can think of reasons why we shouldn't because, you know, it's, you see them. it's, it's a bit <laughs> yucky. I mean, but in terms of following the logic of that argument, it actually is something that's permissible. And so, yeah. and, and they, these, I mean, that's well known in the literature. There's a very famous paper about partial birth abortion saying that yeah, uh, infanticide is not really any different. So, hmm. um, well, it's yeah, the difference of a birth canal, isn't it? There's, there's not really exactly uh, a huge amount in it. I mean, it, so is, is person sort of um, synonymous with, uh, it's gone with viability is, is that kind of no i mean viability is well dan can maybe expand on this more i mean viability when when a, a fetus can survive outside the womb i think is more of a convenient marker for deciding a, a lot of uh, countries have implemented laws about abortion saying you can abort before viability sort of trying to draw a distinction between that and after viability. Um, I guess there is a distinction somewhere, but that mark is moving all the time, yeah. depending on technology and even what country you live in and the medical services available. So I think viability is a little bit of a red red herring. Mm -hmm. so. Oh, very much so. Yeah, I think that's really important that, that the, the Western medicine has changed what viability means. Um, in comparison to other places and yeah. yeah which kind of pulls us back into the whole artificial womb mm. topic that we were and are planning to talk about because an artificial womb 
as Dan and I have written about it in, in, in this paper that we're referring to that will be published in Christian Bioethics, uh, it pushes back viability because initially the development of ecto, what's called ectogenesis um, or artificial wound technology is probably the, the more correct term, Dan will tell me. Um, it's going to, it's going to, it's yeah, ectogestation. It's going to come from developing neonatal care in, in improving mm -hmm. it. And so when babies are born prematurely, um, they'll, they'll be able to go in an artificial womb and have much better health out, outcomes. Babies that do survive before 24 weeks, which is kind of, I think the viability point roughly more or less. Uh, they don't have a very good chance of having of developing completely normally. You know, their lungs are incredibly undeveloped and, and everything else, and their, their outcomes are not really very good. So um, artificial womb technology has, you know, the promise of if you can exactly replicate an artificial, a womb, then if you can, when the child's born prematurely, if you can immediately transfer them in, into into that official womb, then hopefully the process will just continue roughly as normal and they mm. won't suffer all these adverse outcomes, which, uh, you know, will affect them the rest of their life. So just before we move into the sort of ethics around that, like just to dig a bit deeper, how, how close to having artificial wounds are we are they in existence are they being developed as we speak like what what stage are we discussing this Were we or, or is this ahead of the curve type ethical argument um uh, do you want to answer that then yeah, yeah, yeah I, I can tell um yeah so it, it's always a bit of a uh, the planning fallacy when it comes to this people always think that things will take they'll be there they, yeah, we have these ideas but they'll we think they'll be there much sooner than they actually are so in reality like we can't no one can give you a concrete answer about when we're going to be seeing some kind of artificial womb but what what we do know is that there are certain kinds of technology that have been tested on uh, on lambs um uh, call it a bio bag and uh, there's an article published um in 2017 in the journal nature that that where they basically um are they put um uh, young uh, lamb fetuses into a into this bio bag which is effectively a, a kind of artificial womb and they would they developed that lamb for a i think it was about 28 days correct me if i'm wrong yeah. it was about 28 yeah, days right, yeah. um, and it developed uh healthily there were no obvious sort of uh neuro de developmental issues um and um yeah i mean there, there were certainly limitations to what they could test for but it didn't yeah. seem you know it seemed feasible so that's you know it, it's at least feasible um right. i think whether the technology that they used um whether that that could be utilized in in humans is is uh you know is uh we, we don't know but they're they're mammals like us you know the the anatomy and physiology is relatively similar um but we don't know but there's a lot of research so the, at the university of eindhoven in 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 Holland, there's a lot of. I think they they've recently won a couple of million to to look into development of artificial wombs. Um, yeah, and and there's a couple of other companies, there are private companies as well, that are raising money to 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 look at this as well. Um, so yeah, I mean it's certainly in the purview of potentially the next few decades. But again, 
you know, no, no one really knows when, but we do yeah. know that actually it's probably inevitable, which is why me and Bruce uh, uh, try and talk and think a bit about it from a Christian perspective, because what tends to happen, Christians are largely behind the curve. And so what we do, we wait till something new comes out on the horizon, ethically, scientifically, et cetera, that, that's going to impact, uh, that's going to have an effect on us. And then suddenly we start addressing it. And I think what me and Bruce are trying to do, and we're not the only people that have looked at the ethics of um, um, artificial wombs from, from a Christian perspective. Um, but what we're trying to do is, is anticipate things as right, right, this is looking like it's on the horizon in the next few decades. Let's actually look at what Christians just think about it and what is the, what are there theological implications to it? What are the ethical implications? We want to try and be ahead of the curb. Mm. Um, so just just add a bit of context quickly. Um, is there are there are different kinds of artificial wombs. So most people, when you say an artificial womb, people start thinking about the Matrix. Don't you? We've all seen mm -hmm. the scene in the Matrix where you know he hatches out on the robots and you know, uh, and that's how human beings are, are created and 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 developed. Um, or people think about Aldous Huxley's book, um, A Brave New World, where you know, humans are created and, and developed in, hatch, uh, in hatcheries and things like that. Um, so that, that, so uh, that's ectogenesis. So ecto is outside, external, outside genesis is origins. So ectogenesis is external origins. Um, and that's where you'd have a, an embryo that would be created via probably IV, uh, via IVF and then it will put into some sort of artificial environment, an artificial womb, where it would develop until um, it, it's been fully gestated. Yeah. Ectogestation is what Bruce was talking about, is where maybe you have, um, you know, uh, we, we use the example, Bruce gives the example of, a, is it a woman, say at 19 weeks, uh, might have some sort of aggressive uterine cancer. And so she has to choose between, right, well, do I carry this child to term or near term uh, and risk the cancer spreading uh, and not being around for her baby? Or could it be transferred into some kind of artificial room, you know, irrespective of the technology that's going to be uh, that that might involve so that she can get the treatment she wants uh, and the child can therefore be externally gestated until um, it, it's safe for them to be born, even though we'd argue in a sense they have been born. Um, so they're, they're the two kinds. And I think ectogestation is the one that's much more likely to be developed. You know, I think because as Bruce was saying, it's kind of an extension of existing neonatal care, or that's at least how we would view it compared to something, you know, starting, you know, developing a, a human embryo and fetus all the way to term from uh, a single cell embryo is going to be, I think that's, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I can't see that happening this century, but I might, I might be wrong. Who knows? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think the, um, Full ectogenesis is is not likely to happen for a long time, but there's certainly a lot of demand for ectogestation. I think a better neonatal care. Mm. I mean, a really really common thing in pregnancy is preeclampsia, and the really the only way that well, I'm I'm not a medical doctor, but the only way I know of to treat preeclampsia is is delivering the child, and other than you know, rest in hospital and, and, and things like that. But uh, but severe cases of preeclampsia, if you really have to just have a delivery and unless the child is developed to, you know, beyond 24 weeks or maybe a bit later, you, you know, the child is, is going to die. And even if the child does survive, they're going to have a lot of adverse outcomes. And so preeclampsia is incredibly common if, um, Ectogestation 
technologies are able to deal with that, uh, it will make a really significant difference. Yeah. So uh, uh, Dan, Dan's right. That's where the advances are going to come for the foreseeable future. <laughs> so we're talking about quite a pos positive reason for having these artificial rooms is to, to support women in, in very difficult <laughs> scenarios where it's their life or, or a child's and in, in scenarios where they would be considering, as we've just discussed, that it's a child that they want to keep. So it's not like, yeah, I guess abortion doesn't really come into this in the same way, though it could, it could, as I think just to, if I'm hearing you right, it could impact the abortion arguments in terms of viability that kind of would remove some of that argument that the child it's no longer about viability. If you can put them into an artificial womb, you're no longer forcing um, women to have that, a child. That, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, one of the most famous arguments for allowing women to have an abortion by Judith Jarvis Thompson, she explicitly says in, in this uh, philosophical paper, that's probably one of the most cited papers in history. She explicitly says, her argument for allowing abortion is not an argument for the death of the fetus. It's an argument for taking taking an unwanted fetus out of a woman. It's not not to kill it. And so, this hmm. being able to preserve uh, the child's life once it's removed is is you know has quite an impact on her argument. Um, I think both Dan and I have become skeptics that it'll actually make that much difference to yeah. abortion. Oh, uh, yeah. we're, as a society, we're pretty good at, at uh, you know, post-hoc justification of what we want to do. And so there'll be plenty of reasons why, well, you know, maybe viability is not as important as we thought, or um, I think maybe we're going to do what, what society wants to do anyway. But um, yeah. it will certainly make it harder to justify having an abortion if the child at the stage you're talking about a, a later term abortion it can be removed and put into an artificial womb but even now we see we do see laws that uh allow babies to be aborted up to just before birth oh yeah yeah i mean they're clearly viable yeah you know it um if you can abort a baby at 35 weeks then there's no question of viability there Mm. And in in some some jurisdictions, you're allowed to do that right now. So that kind especially of if, especially if disability is involved, then yeah, and, um, and even the most tame. That's right, and that's a really interesting area. Um, there are arguments, philosophical arguments about why you know you you can you should be able to abort children with disabilities, and a lot of disability groups will say, well. We feel as though that doesn't value us mm -hmm. very highly and much less than any other human beings. And uh, mm. it's a bit hard to escape that conclusion that... Um, oh, it's impossible to. <laughs> well, I think it's impossible. Maybe I'm overstating my case from a non-scholarly view, but if you're dehumanizing disability in the womb, then it, it dehumanizes everyone that's alive. Uh, I don't think you can escape that though we celebrate when they do well and they're inspiring in paralympics we'll um we'll still weed them out through technology in the wing we don't really really want i like that's that's the kind of how how else can you 
what other conclusions can be made when we're, we're specifically developing technology to find disabilities in the womb so we can remove said fetus with said disability. Um, and no, uh, um, the Paralympians who have been that way since birth, they're, they're, the, they're the survivors. Yeah. Um, and they're probably a minority nowadays. Mm. Um, yeah, especially, especially with things. That's a scary down. thought. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's interesting. Imagine we changed we changed disability to women or to girls, and we said, look, yeah. um, the limit is 24 mm. weeks for male fetuses, but for female fetuses, it's right up to birth. Um, and uh, it's not that we, once they're born, you know, it's not that we, we're not, there's nothing against them. It's just that we feel, you know, that we, we that, you know, once, once, once you're out of the room, we'll, we'll, we'll celebrate you. Um, but once you're in, you know, while you're in there, um, it's going to be, but it's no, it's not based on discrimination or prejudice or, no, of course or, or anything at all. It's just, uh, you know, it's just the rules, the rules of the game. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've actually written a paper on this about genetic selective abortion and uh basically my argument in that paper is if you agree that you can select for disability then the logic follows that you can select for sex mm -hmm. and in fact you can select for any gen genetic trait you, you like and um i gave an example of uh there are four genes that uh that we can identify thus far that indicate a higher chance of engaging in same-sex behavior when you are an adult. Um, yeah. It's it's just a disposition. You have a maybe 25% higher chance of, of, of basically having same-sex relationships when you're an adult. And so in theory, if you can test for those genes, well, you are in the womb then some parents might decide well i don't want a child like that and i'll abort them wow um there's i mean there's there's all there's all kinds of uh, uh genetic kind of testing you can do for that uh, and, and more common what about intelligence uh, just say you know your family isn't one with a great academic record but you really want your kids to get into university well you if your your child has the genes that indicate they're going to have you know they're not as academically capable as they might have been then you could try again another time um just that, to be clear you, you do disagree really with this <laughs> yeah if you've just joined <laughs> us this isn't this isn't a pro <laughs> no no this is this was an argument I wrote basically saying if you accept abortion for disability, mm. it logically commits you to accepting abortion for all kinds of genetic traits, um, criminality or goodness or whatever. I mean, it's, you know, research in these areas of what gene combinations affect our behavior is, is ongoing and immense, really. So um, again, these are only dispositions our genes don't determine our destiny, but they certainly influence it. Mm. Well, it's even been shown that down to the, the side of things with the, the Down syndrome tests haven't exactly been exact either. Um, you find hear these different stories of people who have been said to be highly likely to have down syndrome from the tests and then they come out and they don't. And at one point they could well have been aborted and, 
Um, I don't know how likely because that test has changed recently to be more accurate. So maybe that's old. Yeah, well, there's two types of tests out there. I think from you know, if you have a a scan, um, they'll do all kinds of measurements to try and determine whether your child might have Down syndrome. But if you actually have a genetic test, that's I think that's extremely accurate. But previously, I'm not sure what it is now, but the the genetic test itself involved the possibility that you would lose lose the child. And so that's um, you, if you want to take that risk um, to determine whether your child has Down syndrome, that's um, what you have to do. Mm. Yeah. 1%. 1%. Yeah, which, you know, that's <laughs> when you look at your own children, would you want a 1% chance that that um, you could lose them over, mm. over something? That seems pretty high to me. Mm. It raises the case of uh, Iceland, I think, uh, that... Iceland is a country that's almost completely eliminated Down syndrome. Yeah. I think there's less, you know, in it's single digits the number of Down syndrome children born in Iceland. I mean, Iceland doesn't have a huge population either, but um, the number of Down syndrome children born is almost zero. Yeah. Um, well, it's the fact that it's viewed as a success as well. Yeah. Yeah, surrendous. Um, I, I find all the sort of severe disabilities just. In, when you meet a kid with Down syndrome or, or a person adult with Down syndrome, like I don't, I don't get it. I don't get why that's a disability that we want out of society. <laughs> there are obviously health implications, and there's there's added uh, complications with with raising someone who who has Down syndrome as a disability, but the they're beautiful people. <laughs> I just don't understand it. Well, I mean, the world is probably, uh, you know, the world would probably be much better off with more Down syndrome people, mm. and, and probably, you know, less less of people who are extremely intelligent and who, you know, cause find ways to justify it. Yeah, I mean, it's just. <clears throat> Yeah, it depends on what your value of human beings is, and mm. most of us <clears throat> think human beings are valuable if they can be economically productive. Um, probably a hangover from uh, a time when, if you weren't economically productive, you, you you died because there just wasn't the resources to look after you. But um, mm. certainly in Western countries, where we're, we're wealthy enough to do that. Right? And it really shows what we think of disability when we allow them to be killed before they're born. Mm. It is weird because, yeah, thinking about that, I mean, um, there obviously were times in history where someone with Down syndrome, um, you know, a person born with Down syndrome, would be, um, this is no in no way to devalue them as individuals, but a burden in the sense that, you know, if you were trying to, uh, you know, at certain times in history, if you couldn't work, like you said, if you couldn't work, you can contribute to uh, the life of the family. Um, you know, you would you would be a burden. It does seem very much like a uh, a, a carryover from having that mindset in which we. Yeah. It's it's. I'm not saying that would be a reason not to to do it, but it's like we've. It's like well. We, we're looking back in history, thinking those people are burned; they can't contribute. So, like, actually, nowadays, people with down, a lot of people with down syndrome can contribute 
They do. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and do more so than than many who don't have any yeah or dis- disability and it's yeah it's it's a mess of the society we live in and it's where my empathy for that kind of thinking i mean this is this is the kind of stuff that i've got in trouble in the past of being overly strong on my social media uh about partly because uh where we're headed, my daughter shouldn't be born with the sort of severe condition that she has. Um, and so it's, it, it can get quite personal quite quickly, so I get quite defensive. Um, but also... Understandably just, so. Yeah, of course, yeah. And, and I, I, I know that, that I'm, I'm fully justified in some of the, the, uh, the responses that I, I have, but there's also... I understand that the the implications for a parent working that through, working that out, are incredibly tough. But man, to 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 see this life as something that can just be discarded because it makes mine uncomfortable, you've got there's just there's this attitude towards children that that they're a commodity now. That I just um, I, I think within. Even within the Christian church, there's this sort of um, attitude that I I expect certain things of my life and that show that God blesses me and that, that one of them is I should get married. The next is I should have kids. And so how we talk about this in the church is it's very much that that's the expectation. And when that doesn't happen, well, I should have kids and I'm going to make it happen. And... I don't think that's talked about too much, and I've, I've friends and family that have have gone through IVF, but I don't recall ever hearing anything about the the implications of IVF. And there's a lot of Christian couples who think about it incredibly hard and have gone through all the ethics of that and made sure they don't have too many embryos, made sure that they've done it very carefully. But there's still a underlying assumption around children. I think that. A, we are we have a right to have them, and B, that they're sort of like I fucking have the ones that make my life better, <laughs> um, and, and that attitude has there's there's an edge to it within Christian within the church, but in society, it's I I, I will have them when I want because I can control my life. Um, it kind of adds as a background to all this sort of stuff about choice um, just makes it even even more messy hi there this is phil dunkoff thank you so much for listening to the critical witness podcast if you like what you hear please do uh, subscribe share the episode and write a review it will help others find us And if you really like what you hear and want us to grow, please do consider supporting us through patreon.com forward slash critical witness. Enjoy the rest of the show. Well, ectogenesis will really allow you to have them whenever you like if um, that becomes a reality because um, it will remove um, gestation away from the human experience if you have enough money to pay for it. whenever it actually becomes a reality <clears throat> means you can you know use ivf and straight into an artificial womb and mm-hmm. um you can have your child without any in, involvement with 
your own body whatsoever, wow. except at the very, very beginning. Which there are times when that, yeah. So I guess let's sort of discuss the ethics of that then. So I'm just sort of processing that. So there's currently, there's some conversation around um, surrogacy and the sort of, um, so in that, that remove the artificial womb would remove the need for a surrogate. So I guess that kind of ethical dilemma would be removed. But for those who have significant health issues that can't carry to term, but would love to have children with their, their partner, then the artificial womb could enable that as an ethical scenario. Would that be a, yeah, I mean, that's certainly a possibility. Um, well, I mean, what, what a Christian, what would be a Christian response be to that? Is that, is that wrong to go through that or is it, is it? Yeah. Wrong? I mean, I mean, I have a, a close Christian friend who has been in that, uh, situation where she's unable to have, um, her own children because of a particular condition and used, uh, a surrogate, um, to have a child, a, a close relative and, um, yeah, it's an it's it's an interesting question. Um, I think it's probably in terms of ectogenesis, it's better to step back from that and say, okay, maybe it will help eliminate surrogacy, which would be a good thing, because paid for surrogacy, I think, is very is is exploitative uh, of women and. Um, it's mainly poorer women in developing countries who, who do it for rich women in other countries. And uh, I don't think that's a really good thing at all because, mm. you know, it extracts quite a high price from them uh, despite being compensated. But um, there's the issue, one, one of the issues with full ectogenesis is this is the effect that it would have on a child and how we get from here to there without doing a lot of experimentation and um you know that's that's a, that's a real real worry what, what about the children who we're gonna put through the process of seeing whether this thing works developing the technology finding the flaws all that kind of thing mm. there's a lot of ethical dilemmas involved there to start with apart from the effects of uh, ectogenesis once it's perfected the, the process of getting there might uh, sacrifice a lot of lives and have some have some implications we don't expect i mean you you can imagine how i, I can imagine in a, a horrible uh, way they would go about doing it in the sense of you know there are millions of um spare em spare embryos uh you know left over from ivf um I think just just in the United States, so mm. you can imagine a scenario where you know they were able to get um, you know permission to utilize a uh, a spare embryo and testing it and say right, well, abortion is legal, say even somewhere, uh, you know, six weeks. Well, we're going to develop the embryo for six weeks and then we'll then we'll end abort it uh, at, at you know switch off artificial gestation at six at six weeks oh, great right let's uh and then you, you basically build it up until um, oh, you you get, yeah and you just look at you know you would tweak things as um 
you know, as, as required. And you can imagine a scenario like that where it starts off, um, you know, seeing just say, right, let's get to a week, right, abort, let's get to two weeks, right, let's end it, let's get to three weeks and you and you, you would build, build it up. I can imagine some sort of scenario like that. Good. Yeah, I, I think Dan's absolutely right that um, it's almost inevitable that uh, these millions of spare embryos, some of them who aren't owned by anyone, I expect, will end up getting used for experiments for um, ectogenesis. That, that seems In hindsight, that seems pretty obvious that that's what will happen. A lot of what? those embryos have been donated for scientific research already. Mm. And so you have millions of human beings at the earliest stage of their life who uh, will get used and then discarded after a certain period of time. And uh, yeah, I think personally, I think that's horrendous. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, we, again, it's something that's sort of there, and we don't tend to think think about. And I, I guess I mean, there's, there's a comment from Callum in the chat, which is kind of interesting. Uh, I'm not sure if um, you've read uh, David Albert Jones. Is, have you come across the Soul of the Embryo? Have you come across yeah. that? So, uh, just just I, I guess maybe taking a step back, we're kind of assuming pro-life stance in our conversations that, that the embryo has life value is human. Where, where would you argue, especially in a scholarly way, but maybe bring it down to my level, um, like where, where, why is that Christian? Uh, and for, for anyone who might catch on to why, why is pro-life such a, a big thing for the Christian when the embryo, as we've already said, it can't, it isn't viable, especially in the early weeks, the earliest weeks, especially these embryos that are in storage, don't have a heartbeat, don't have a brain. Um, why is there value in them? Why, why, why can't they be discarded? Um, well, that's a good question. Probably Dan and I both should try and answer this um, from, from a Christian point of view. Well, I mean, there isn't really, I mean, the Bible doesn't really directly address abor abortion, um, but there are quite a lot of a lot of passages in, in the Bible that indicate God values us before we're born. Um, I think it must be Psalm 139 talks about how God knits us together in our mother's womb. And so there's a very real sense that God is, intimately involved in the process of our creation before we're born. And so from, I think that's a very strong indication that um, certainly from God's point of view, we're, 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 we're valuable before we're born. Uh, I think uh, John the Baptist's mother it, uh, describes how uh, John the Baptist was, I think, had the Holy Spirit mm. before he was even born. So again, from a theological point of view, I think any entity that can have the Holy Spirit, it probably better <laughs> indicates you probably should be killing them. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, Dan, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, um, in, in the New Testament, you see um, the, the the same word for a born child is used for um, unborn, uh, Greek term brephos. Um, so there's no the biblical uh, writers did not understand any distinction between um, prenatal and, and, and postnatal uh, human beings. 
Um, you know, I think you can derive from that as well, you know, that Jesus was an embryo. Uh, Jesus was a fetus. And if, if, if Jesus would killed, uh, you know, uh, in, in utero, it would have been, you know, you'd be killing the savior, uh, you know, so we have to think that there are, there are causal, you know, what, what happens in utero affects what happens, um, what happens afterwards. Um, uh, Bruce has talked a lot about, um, it was written a lot about this, um, and I also think it's key as well, is when we look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know, what, when we look at uh, uh, pregnancy um, and, and, and fetal life is in that context, what does it mean for a Christian, you know, Jesus, you know to, to love our neighbours? Um, and there are, you know, there are, there are a few options. And I think um, a pro-abortion or, you know, a pro-choice stance it is hard to take that reading exegetically uh, or to, under, to understand, to, you know, when Jesus says, go and do likewise. When we look at fetal life and pregnancy and we look and we take that parable seriously and consider, you know, um, how to do likewise, it's very hard to come away, I think, from looking at, uh, um, at prenatal life and think that loving our neighbour means killing them uh in utero before they can be born and flourish and and um uh you know flourish to the glory of god um so i think any christian has to take that seriously they have to they have to be able to to um you know i i struggle you know at judgment stand before god and say no i i understand you know that actually i understood that um you know a good interpretation of of, of loving my neighbor as myself um and is would would you know entails that it's the abortion is permissible i find that um unpalatable um in the same way that if a christian said infanticide was okay uh that's hmm. if i might add to that as well um just in terms of reasons I think for 2000 years, the Christian church has been opposed to abortion where the church has been very consistent about that mm-hmm. um, from the very early days. Uh, uh, Christians rescued children that were exposed in, in for which was the, the Roman practice of children they didn't want. They would just uh, leave them out for, for the wild beasts and mm-hmm. they would be eventually die and all be eaten and Christians were known for rescuing those 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 children, and uh, I think there's uh, very early Christian writings indicate that they thought abortion wasn't permissible, yeah. and the church has been very consistent in that stance for all of that time. To, I mean, we're now Protestant and Catholic. I think the Catholic Church has been probably the most consistent, uh, yeah. but over the two thousand years, Christians have been opposed to abortion and. Uh, it's something church tradition, while it's not inviolable, is uh, something we need to we need to take into consideration. Um, why did the church fathers think that, and um, what's changed that we think we can we can do that now? And I don't think anything yeah. has. I mean, no, um, human human development hasn't changed at all since then. <laughs> yeah, well, I, mean, just... I guess I, I meant our knowledge of human development. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, just, yeah, just to reinforce yeah. what, what Bruce is saying as well. I mean, this potentially this goes back to the first century as well. Um, you know, if we looking at the D decay, uh, quite clearly says that abortion is murder. 
Um, mm. You've got uh, the Gospel of Barnabas as well. That's probably um, uh, early, early second, early second, Epistle of Barnabas. Sorry, uh, early second century. Um, you know, you look at the church fathers like Tertullian, and you know it's it, it's absolutely consistent for the first you know few, uh, very clearly for the first few hundred years. And I think um, you know a Christian has to. Um, you know, you have to take those views seriously and wonder how they, um, you know, why why did they have those views? Why were they so strong um, mm. and, and, and prevalent? And you saw those views amongst, you know, that come straight out of Judaism as well. You know, what's the most valuable thing is your family. Um, you know, the importance of children and having a family. And, and so the, the very thought of killing uh, 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 an unborn child uh, in, mm. in, in utero is really a, anathema to, um, to, 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 to Jewish culture um, because they just so clearly understood that, that, they, that you know, all human beings bear, bear the image, image of God. Yeah, think, uh, uh, that's, that's really helpful. I think that, that brings a decent amount of, of clarity to, to the assumptions that we've, we've brought to this conversation. So I think that's, that's good. I guess the the one sort of point of clarity i'll be interested in your views on this i don't think we've talked about it before on this channel so the most common thing at the moment that i'm seeing online with regards to um the idea that even in extreme cases where uh, it's usually rape and incest are the two cases that are brought up as as examples you've got this common i've never seen it but you, you've seen the costumes of like the Handmaid's Tale. That that's the result of um, men telling women that they they can't um, even in these extreme cases have abortions. That you're basically making women into baby factories. What I think is, uh, I'll put my cards on the table. I think it's an absurd argument. But I can't put words around why. <laughs> all, 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 all the survey data from the US uh, and I think from the UK shows that men uh, are, are more pro-choice than women. Yeah, no, that's that's right. Um, by far, the majority of people who are, who are, I guess, often, they're often called pro-life uh, are, are women rather than men. Uh, uh, hmm. I think uh, abortion probably suits men more than it does women a lot of the time. Mm. Um, it's very convenient for men to escape their responsibilities by um, by the woman that they've, uh, you know, enabled to have a child uh, ends that pregnancy. They can escape complete responsibility for it. Yeah, yeah. So, Large, largely men want abortion. They want legal abortion. Mm. Largely. That's pretty interesting. So the, the, that's really interesting. I, don't, I, I think I'd come across that, but I'm not connected the dots in that as a response. Like, actually, if you want a society controlled by men, you're in it. <laughs> like, yeah. be pro-life and you'll fight that. <laughs> it's rhetorically powerful. Like, it's there's a, the, the reason you hear it so often is because, um, yeah, it's it's classic rhetoric. It, you know, it is it is a it's a it's a on the surface it's a good point to make you know there are bodies men should play you know play show and no part in telling us what we can and can't do with our bodies so there is a a level in which it it, it seems intuitive until you poke a little bit um a, a little bit further um, mm. 
you have to neglect that that um, you know a significant proportion of all women uh, uh, probably ar around the world um, are, are not pro-choice, uh, and certainly nowhere near as pro-choice, you know, as, as permissive as as um, you know women in the West. Um, I think another. Uh, I guess a relevant point, particularly in the US, is um, you know the, the Roe versus Wade mm -hmm. case is of immense importance in the United States in in allowing abortion to to become legal. And sometimes people who make the accusation you mentioned conveniently forget that uh, that decision was made by seven men, seven uh, men in the, the Supreme Court, and so men are the ones who enabled abortion to become legal in that country and now that there's there's a woman on the supreme court who is who is pro-life um apparently that's that's not so good mm. so uh, I d i'm not sure that argument holds at all when it comes to the supreme court of the united states mm. It was just the right men were in there before, and, and now the right men were in there. Yeah, no, the she's, wrong, she, the wrong she's just caught. She's just caught up in the patriarchy. <laughs> yeah, and she's been well, on Twitter I mean, too much. She's a, she's an example of I, I I can't remember. I think she's got like maybe Nine seven children, children or something, something like that. Yeah, she's Catholic, and, so and well, yeah, she's she's a Catholic, and um, apparently women can have children and rise to the office of the Supreme Court all yeah, all, all at once yeah yeah what a, what a testimony of of the sort of anti-rhetoric that we're i think they've adopted children as well haven't they i think they've got like several of their own but they've also adopted as well uh, she is a superwoman as far as i can tell she but, is um she 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 kind of is an illustration of how that i think sometimes women are patronized by saying well you know you need to get rid of your your child so that you can get your education or you can make yeah. this achievement and so on well yeah. maybe maybe that's not true and if it is true maybe society needs a little bit of reordering so that we don't have to sacrifice children for yeah. our education and our careers prospects yeah i think the, the the french prime minister said something like that maybe within the last year maybe it's maybe it's a little longer about um and basically said you know um that women can't have lots of children be successful and there's a great twitter thread of just all these probably mo mostly catholic women with like four five six seven eight children you know in you know absolutely flourishing you know with phds in top jobs but just it just went on forever i, I couldn't even get to the bottom because there were just so many Amazing. Uh, kind of um you know although you know saying that again you know I, I still do think we have to recognize as things stand actually it is more it will be more difficult you know especially if you're a single parent mm. um you know thinking uh you know you can go and carry on your education and, and there won't be uh, obstructions and challenges of that of course there will be uh, but it's not necessarily the inevitable um as inevitably negative as it's often framed which i think you're right to say that the women are often patronized by, yeah. by that having said that i think um society does need to to have some changes so that uh, women particularly single women who do have mm -hmm. children it is easier for them and i think we're actually mm -hmm. seeing that in terms of there's 
there's it, it's easier in most countries to have longer periods of maternity leave time off to raise children and i think that's a really good trend that does see help us value children more hmm. yeah I think, I think it's also shifting that well at least in, in my generation I, th I think i'm seeing more men especially in the church accommodating the, the progress and careers of their wives uh, i think i i know of a handful of people that of blokes who have taken on at least for a period of time looking after the kids and, and taking more of a um not not backseat but just taking the the role of parent what while the other works and and that's definitely more acceptable uh these days than i know that it it was i mean there's there's probably a lot of people that would decry that as the feminization of of christianity but um i see it as a a good move where dad dads take ownership of the the role and responsibility that god's given them and if that means they have to stay at home for a bit well be a man about it <laughs> yeah i mean just on that i mean i think in retrospect you you know you get to whatever age you retire at and it's like well did it really matter that i worked for 42 years instead of 43 years or yeah. you know what i mean it's like yeah. We spend most of our lives working um is it such a bad thing for men too to spend more time with their children and just a year less or or whatever it might be from from their career um you know most of us peak in our careers at a certain time in midlife anyway and um i don't know work is work is maybe not as quite as important as we think it is sometimes mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a, a challenge to to be had. So I, I think we've gone gone around different different routes. I, I guess before we sort of begin to wrap this up, it'd be interesting to talk about the more negative implications around the ethics of, because especially about artificial wounds. We kind of went into artificial wounds, heard the positives, potentially the the way that it negates the argument of viability we've talked about it potentially in natal care really helping when then there's it's the life of the mum or the life of the baby where are the negatives uh, or the the ethical implications that christians should be aware of and um possibly starting to think of how we might respond and um do they need to put barriers on this well i guess i mean going back to the paper that dan and i've written it's probably this will it'll probably be 12 months before it's out i think but um that'll be good it's i think from our point of view anyway it's quite a re it's a readable paper and it will be worth worth reading if you're interested in this kind of technology when it when it does come out in the journal christian bioethics you won't need to be a philosopher to read it i don't think so anyone is a preprint anyway isn't it we could always put a link in here we've got a pre yeah that's right we'll put a link in the description okay. so one one thing we've mentioned is the whole process of getting to uh, via ectogenesis involves experimentation and that's obviously that's true there's yeah, a lot of negatives involved with that and yeah. possible use of frozen embryos and that kind of thing um 
IVF itself will be necessary and IVF, there are a lot of ethical complications with IVF, mainly to do, I think, with uh, surplus embryos. But if, for, for Roman Catholics, think IVF separates um, sex from from having children and, and they think it is kind of a disordering of human relationships. Mm. Um, so that's for people who are Catholics. Uh, I don't I don't really hold to that myself, but any anything a Catholic philosopher says, I, I do take seriously their point of view because they're normally very thoughtful and very thorough in in their mm. ruminations. I think Dan and I have highlighted in this paper as well that if we ever do get to the position where it's kind of ubiquitous that people use artificial wombs. Uh, this is incredibly speculative because I kind of doubt that will that will happen. But you know, we might get to the matrix eventually. <laughs> Just as an aside, I, I did read the other day that most people under thirty have never even seen one of the Matrix movies, so they may not understand what we're even talking about there but the matrix 4 trailer came out the other day so we'll, we'll matrix see. 4 trailer just came out so they might have to go back and watch them <laughs> binge watch um, but there is in in christianity there's a really deep theological significance to conception pregnancy and birth mm. and um i mean the central fact i guess of the founding fact of Christianity is the incarnation where Jesus came and was somehow conceived and uh, through a virgin birth and was was born and uh, in time if that is entirely removed from human experience um, we just note that that may detract from the theological significance of the incarnation and Generally, it's also used birth as, as a metaphor for the new birth in, as in becoming a Christian. And so these metaphors and, and these events, their theological significance in the distant future, if ectogenesis becomes ubiquitous, we may start to lose touch with what they mean. Yeah. Um, we may think they're less significant than what they are today. So that's one. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I think we noted a few other things. I mean, we identified that there was a, one of the problems was that ectogestation seems largely very positive. I don't think any Christian, um, I, I can't, there are very few, I don't think there are any, there are no persuasive reasons really, I think, for not embracing ectogestation, uh, which as we discussed is um, really just an extension of existing neonatal care. Yeah. Um, because in that case, I don't think there would be much experimentation in the, in, in the same way we talk about ectogenesis. It would be, look, here is this scenario. This baby is going to die, perhaps anyway. Let's see if we can, uh, you know, let's see if they can, uh, let's see if we can oh, save them by transferring them to an ar artificial womb, which is very different to the scenario we're talking about in, ter in terms of ectogenesis. Yeah. I think what me and Bruce point out is once you've, once you, once you've gone down the road of accepting um, ectogestation, in, in many ways you've then enabled ectogenesis because all that's going to happen is you're going to you're going to push back you're going to push back ectogestation further and further as time passes. Mm. Um, you know, once it might be twenty weeks, now it's 
18 weeks. Now you can transfer a, a, a fetus at 14 weeks as well. And it keeps going back to the point that actually now our technology would actually enable us to, to, to facilitate ectogenesis. So and, that, that, and, that, and that has a, a, a lot more ethical problems. Um, so in that sense, though, the, the ethical issues of developing the other. So it's like the reverse <laughs> of your development. You, your experimentation is more on an, a positive ethical line of let's try and save this child yep. earlier and earlier and earlier at the different extremes. Whereas opposed to destroying embryos in the process of trying to keep them longer. So it's, it's quite interesting. The positive ethic of neonatal care would inadvertently create something that where actually eventually IVF could go into an artificial womb and the woman hasn't physically been involved other than producing the egg same with the man producing the sperm yeah i mean it gets it gets potentially more sinister as well because what what what, what you could potentially see you got to think as well look this is only going to be occurring in rich Western countries. Mm -hmm. now, this yeah. isn't going to be happening in Sierra Leone or Kenya uh, or Peru. Uh, it, it's going to be happening in, in the US, UK, Australia, Canada, China, um, Russia, etc. Mm. Um, and what you can see happening is, well, if you're already doing IVF, you're going to be doing PGD, you know, prenatal genetic di diagnosis as well. So you're going to pick um you're going to ensure that you've got a, a healthy embryo to implant well what's to stop you then using crispr um which is sort mm. of um you know technology to potentially change you know, gene therapy you know, change the yeah. genes yeah. um you, you, you potentially end up with the logic is developing rich western people developing enhanced embryos you know right well let's use crispr to make them more intelligent mm. let's make just use crispr to uh, after we've chosen a healthy embryo is to make sure they've got the genes to be tall. They're all going to be six foot three. Uh, let's make sure they're going to be handsome or beautiful. Uh, let's ensure that they're athletic. Um, you know, so you, it, it's, um, it, and that's what humans do. It won't be many people. That's oh, just, yeah. We're, yeah. We're, we're so terrible that once you open that door, um, you know, there'll be, there'll be somewhere, somewhere, someone somewhere will, push it to its conclusions yeah. and do everything and they can. So other people will want it as well. And yeah. Um, yeah. basically you end up with what's called the commodification of children, where we we engineer children to, to be what we want. Yeah. And, um, uh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's an artificial way of doing that. But I mean, people have been trying to do that for, yeah, I mean, people did that with, with slaves. Uh, people did that with, yeah, trying to, trying to make sure they're breeding the right, the right, people and it's, it's a commodity making commodities out of humans has been happening for centuries we've just now got technology that can do it for us yeah, yeah um, so it's part of what's ironic as well is that um a lot of the arguments for it is is based on sort of justice um, so a lot of the feminist literature will talk about how this 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 should be this should be supported and enabled because it frees women from the burdens of a pregnancy yes. um, right. but what's ironic is that well 99 i think bruce will correct me if i'm wrong but about 99 percent of all um uh, of maternal mortality occurs in lower middle income countries so we're going to implement technology to save women 
comparatively rich Western women from the burden of pregnancy, whilst 99% of maternal mortality occurs in lower middle income countries who will not be able to utilize this technology. Um, so actually seems there's almost an argument actually developing ectogenesis is actually unjust um, mm. in, 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 in many ways um, because it, it, it benefits those who are already privileged to such an extent, um, you know, over, over those, uh, you know, comparatively uh, less well-off women around, around the rest of the world. Hmm. Well, one other downside that um, we don't actually mention in our paper, but probably should have now that I think about it, is that um, in this commodification of children, um, the status of children in an artificial womb is, you know, for a lot of people will be a little bit uncertain. They're not, um, abortion's permissible now. Um, so society doesn't, as, as a whole, a lot of people in society don't place a whole lot of value on children that are, are being gestated. Um, we're short of organ donors in for enormous number of different organs. Um, it will be incredibly easy to take, again, maybe all these frozen embryos, and we can produce so much good by gestating children in there maybe we can engineer it so that they don't have a brain so they're not really alive yeah. at least they're not fully human and uh, we can grow organs in our artificial wombs and that's going to be uh, we humans have a history of of justifying things like this because of the great good that they can achieve and yeah. um i can see that that is probably a, a very likely outcome of ectogenesis in, in, you know, in the distant future, but um, certainly I can see that happening. Mm. What's the thing about This is why we, our, our paper in Christian bioethics calls it the Christian dilemma. I mean, Christians traditionally we want to look after infants and the premature mm. and you know looking after the sick is is what christians do and that's what they've done for two thousand years and so we have this dilemma of the seeking to do that through technology may one day enable this technology that has not so good implications and yeah that's why we we say it is a christian dilemma yeah yeah, that's quite an interesting way of putting it. Um, definitely put a link into the description. Um, I'm starting to fade, I'll be honest. I'm starting to feel uh, like breakfast. You're, yeah, you're so definitely going to get to breakfast. So it'll be interesting, just, just to, as we start to, to close up, Bruce, uh, and, and Dan, feel free to add onto this as well. What... Uh, Maybe give us a couple of different resources. What's what's a sort of popular level resource that you'd recommend people just sort of starting to engage from? A, what, what would you give to a pastor <laughs> to I'll give to a congregation? Which one? I, I, For, I, I well, would give a pastor a copy of our preprint. Yeah, I think that's the most concise and relatively readable resource on artificial wounds. For a Christian pastor could could find at the moment that would be awesome. If that's not too egotistical of us, 
No, I don't think, because that's part of why we did it. I think even the reviewers from the journal said that this would be the perfect thing to give to pastors, college professors, um, who are introducing it to a, to a Christian community. So I don't think we're being so I think That's part of the reason we've, we've, we've written it very, you, know, you don't need any expertise, really. I don't, I, I like to think to, to read the paper and understand the main, the main no, points. That's right, yeah. I mean, other, other than that, go and, go, and, go and see The Matrix, studying at the first one, and <laughs> you could probably yeah. skip the, the stop, second stop, and third stop one. Stop at the first one, really. Yeah, yeah stop the at first the first and maybe see the fourth. <laughs> Watch the first uh, one and then that's uh, it. And other, other book as well that covers it quite well, especially the best, you know, probably the best book of all abortion is, is, um, is Christopher Kazel's book um, on, on abortion. And that has a whole chapter on um, artificial wounds. Um, so if you want to have something that tackles abortion and uh, artificial wounds, then his, his book would be the, the standard book to go to. Yeah, cool. I mean... Artificial womb. If you're going to want to read up on artificial wombs, go the whole hog and and get his book and and get up to date on abortion in general. Because I think that's in in a way that's a far more pressing topic of moral concern than artificial wombs, even though we're talking about those now. So yeah, the, the two go together. Just one more point as well, quickly. Um, I know it's it's late now. Is is that I think a lot of a lot of Christians, what you see is very positive. Um, put a really positive spin on the technology, the, the whole notion of ectogenesis, because they think it will stop abortion. They think yeah. that once we've got artificial wombs, that will end abortion. But I think, uh, as me and Bruce kind of argue and have done elsewhere, is I just genuinely don't think that's the case, because yeah. the, the logic of it is that, well, if you've got an artificial womb, well, women can already gestate and then, um, uh, and then give put the give the child up for adoption so but most women who pursue abortions do not do that they abort um and so it's it's very unlikely that they would they this group group of individuals is then going to suddenly decide to gestate for say 30 mm -hmm. weeks or 25 weeks and then um go through something on par on you know on medically on par in terms of risk the same as the cesarean section and then give the child up for adoption just seems kind of implausible to me yeah. or at least, yeah and, and whoever's the societal pressures that lead a woman to make that decision to abort as well will still be there yeah and and it, it has to be available early enough to compete with abortion as well which is yeah. not really in the purview for decades you know yeah. most abortions occur before 13 weeks um, yeah. and the technology is not going to be I, I can't see it being anywhere near there for decades well. if if, yeah. if ever for, for a while Cool. That's uh, it's really helpful, guys. I, I really appreciated your your clarity and candor this evening. Uh, it's, it's a big topic, and I've uh, yeah, very much appreciated you you guys and all the work you're doing. Even though I haven't read your papers, uh, it's it's good that you're doing it, and very much appreciate all of that. And I will make sure I will read this paper that's aimed at pastors because I might well understand that one. <laughs> you, you could read the abstract. <laughs> yeah, I'll start it. I'll start, oh, at least, yeah, I'll definitely give it a go. Make sure you send me the link. Um, cool. Any final comments, words, wisdom? Um, no, go, Bruce. Um, no, I think, um, yeah, but basically for Christians, the more you can learn about this whole area of uh, reproductive ethics, as, as it's called, the better. Um, 
uh, I mean, when you learn that there are between 50 and 75 million abortions worldwide every year, there's probably been a billion abortions since the turn of the century, since, you know, in the last 20 years. Um, they're, they're staggering numbers and um, it's it's something it's just something something to think about in terms of our priorities in in what we talk about and even in churches um, with with sensitivity as 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 you said yourself said Phil um, the likelihood is women in the congregation may have had an abortion and it's really important to to when you talk about abortion to let people know it's not an unforgivable sin either and that um, you know people find forgiveness after abortions like they do after for for any other sin but um it's still something with that we need to be talking about more yeah yeah definitely and yeah absolutely agreed and trying to find ways to to do that uh in my own sort of preaching and teaching um cool well thanks again uh i'll i'll sort of wrap this up and uh so we've got a couple of conversations we're starting to get ourselves organized with who to talk to dan's been busy today with getting a line of um people to talk to uh where if you are on our patreon uh support list then we'll we'll get a list out to our patreons soon of of all the upcoming chats and uh otherwise you just have to wait till they happen um and yeah that we can find us patreon.com critical witness uh we've got the one i will tell you about is we've got dr joshua swamidas next week talking about the genealogical adam and eve and whether or not uh science says anything about adam and eve being uh, a real couple in the not so distant past and uh, all that sort of debate about origins uh, and Genesis in a different form than what we've been talking about tonight. So join us next Thursday evening for that. And um, I think that's all from us tonight. Have a very good evening and thanks to those who have watched and those of you watching on demand, make sure you like, subscribe, share, and uh, yeah, comment, let us know Are what you, you think. Have a good night. See you later. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you hear, please do give us a subscribe on YouTube or follow us on any of the social media out there and give us feedback. Get in touch, let us know what you think. If you really enjoyed the content and want to support it, find us on patreon.com.